Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcasts. My name is Jared Williams, and today I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Alvaro Garcia Bonilla. He's an assistant professor of equine surgery at the University of Montreal. Today, he's going to be discussing his original article from EVE about extranasal approaches to access the dorsal and ventral conchobola in horses. I know it's a bit of a mouthful, uh, but he can describe it in such a way that it's very clear, and, and we're very pleased to have him with us today. Uh, Dr. Bonilla, like I said, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Uh, before we get started, are there any co-authors or collaborators on this manuscript, this article, that you'd like to acknowledge? Thank you very much for the introduction, Dr. Williams. Uh, yeah, uh, thank you for asking. There is actually a co-author. It's uh, Dr. Morgan Pouillet, uh, which uh, she did a, a master's with me. And during that master's, uh, she developed uh, this study and one other study about minimal invasive uh, cyanoscopy. Great. So I guess before we kind of get into the article specifically, uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself. We know you practice in Montreal, but tell us a little bit about um, uh, how you got where you are and uh, about the scope of your practice. Sure. So I'm originally from Spain, and I went to vet school there, and I graduated uh, in 2005 uh, from University of Cordoba in the south of Spain. And after that... Uh, I wanted to seek the opportunity of becoming a surgeon, so I did a couple of internships, uh, starting from general internships to a specialized internship, and that got followed by an orthopedic uh, fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania before I, I joined the Ohio State University, where I performed an equine surgical residency. At the same time, I was doing a, a master's. Uh, and uh, after I finished that, I worked at Ohio State uh, for a little bit, and then uh, I worked in a couple of their practices until uh, I came to Montreal around five years ago, and I became uh, one of the uh, professors here. Um, University of Montreal is most likely the busiest uh, francophone uh, university. Uh, we are lucky that in this region uh, we don't have any private practices, so we still have a really good caseload, um, unless some, some other universities with private practices close by. Um, so our caseload at the moment, uh, because the racing industry is a little, uh, has died down uh, in terms of thoroughbreds in the last few years, is uh, mainly... Uh, some standard breeds, quarter horses, warm blood, uh, and a mix of pleasure horses. So I would say that um, within that caseload, uh, it's probably 50% orthopedics. But then we have a great miscellaneous of cases with a lot of uh, respiratory cases, uh, spe specifically sinuses. Uh, and that's why uh, one, one of the reasons why we developed this project. And, uh, you know, and just the other typical things, reproductive things, et cetera, et cetera. Great. Thanks. 
So you, you mentioned that you guys do come across a fair amount of sinonasal disease and you're doing a, a fair amount of sinus surgery. Tell us, tell the audience a little bit about the impotence for this, uh, this project and the disease process and what made you look into it. Yeah, so before coming to Montreal, I was actually working at the UK with Henry Tremaine, which uh, he's pretty well known uh, for uh, his knowledge and uh, in paranasal sinus surgery and and uh, all the publications about it, which I, uh, during that time I learned a lot from him. And uh, when I arrived to Montreal, I was surprised that the, the caseload for sinus surgery was actually pretty high in here. So uh, I developed an interest, uh, maybe a certain uh, degree of specialization on the matter, and uh, we started developing some projects. And some of them were with this uh, master's student that I just named, um, Dr. Pouillet. Perfect. So... What were the challenges that you were up against uh, with the way the current techniques for managing the various sinonasal disease processes, particularly ones with the, the conco bulla? What made you think, we need to try something different? Yeah, good question. Thank you for the question. So uh, basically when I got here, uh, I started working with uh, needle arthroscopy. And there, during that time, um, I thought, well, here I, I'm fortunate enough that I'm in academia, so I can perform CT when I have to. And CT, we all know that it's the gold standard uh, for the paranasal sinuses. But many people is not fortunate enough that they have CT available or uh, some people prefer not to do it, as in many institutions, CT still has to be done under general anesthesia. So we decided to collaborate with the, the company, uh, one of the companies that produces needle scopes, and modify a scope uh, to make it longer and flexible to be able to perform minimally invasive sinoscopy through a two millimeter hole. Uh, and that, uh, for us, has been great and very successful. Uh, and we are very proud of that technique. But while we were developing that technique, uh, to be able to develop it, we had to work a lot with cadavers uh, and uh, to make sure we did the, the fine-tuning of the technique. And we did a lot of anatomical dissections. And during that time, we realized that the bulla, the nasal bullas, or the nasal conca bullas, uh, were always in a pretty uh, stable um anatomical position and that probably uh, it could be accessed uh, extranasally because to date uh, these nasal concabulas actually I would I wouldn't be surprised if many of the people listening to us they are not sure what we are talking about because that was my case around uh, five six years ago uh, I believe the, the first publication uh, talking about disease of these bullas was by Dr. Dixon in 2015. And at that point, I got interested about that pathology. What is this pathology? Where are these nasal concha bullas? And uh, from reading uh, those manuscripts, I realized that 
unless you do a CT, or at the time, unless you do a CT, it was almost impossible to obtain a definitive diagnosis. So we try with this technique two things. First, develop a technique that will allow us to obtain a definitive diagnosis when there was a concavula empyema or concavula infection, and also uh, use this, the same technique or the same approach to treat the pathology if possible. So explain to us a little bit the, the relationship and the difference between the ventrodorsal conchal sinuses versus the bulla themselves. Where are they? What are they for? Yes, so the bullas are, are two little structures uh, that they are maybe we can describe them as two little bubbles. Uh, they're basically soft, uh, two small structures surrounded by soft uh, bony lamella and, and nasal mucosa that they are uh, in between the meatus. Um, and they are actually completely uh, isolated from the peronasal sinuses. But they are in a relationship with them because they are just rostral to them. The dorsal concavula is just rostral to the dorsal concal sinus, and the ventral concavula is just rostral to the ventral concal sinus. So actually, in around 20% of the horses that have sinus disease, those bullas may be affected with uh, MPMA. So you would describe them as these little self-contained sacs that can get infected. And when you have chronic nasal disease, it's because you have these infections that are unable to drain, unable to go anywhere. You basically have ongoing persistent infection. Thus, you need to open them and evacuate them. Is that a fair way of thinking about the bulla? Yeah, yeah. The bulla is basically within, we all know that within the nasal cavity, we have the ventral meatus, the middle meatus, the dorsal meatus. And in between these meatus, we have the ventral concha and the dorsal concha, which we believe that these structures make the, the school a little lighter, but also warm up the air before it gets uh, to the important, to, to the lungs, among other areas. So within those conchas, we have these little sacs inside that they drain and they have drainage points to, to the nose. Uh, and obviously, they are surrounded by nasal mucosa, so there will be some mucus that is produced. But in the presence of, of infection in the area, for some reason, uh, they pass accumulates and obliterates those little, uh, those little drainage points and form inspissated or thick pass within them, uh, and that's when it becomes a problem for the horse. So the way you like to treat them is, at least the way you like to treat them surgically, is to open up those bulla. And that gets us to uh, the cadaveric study that started and led to this paper. So tell us a little bit, what was your idea uh, to get at them? What's, what, what's novel and interesting about what you did? Yeah, so you did a good description. So basically, there is pass accumulation, so the treatment is to drain it. So up to the point that we described this approach, the only approach to treat this pathology in the literature was to go with a laser, which obviously not everyone has a laser, 
uh, a diode laser I'm, I'm talking about, uh, perform a fenestration so the pass could get out of the bullet. Once the fenestration was done, then you will probably need to do lavages with the endoscope for a few days, and that way you will be able to get things out of there. So what we thought is that on one way, uh, in one way, sorry, uh, CT was not available for everyone to get a diagnosis, neither laser to perform the treatment. So what about if we could get from the outside of the sinuses and perf- or, or outside of the nose in this case and perform a hole into that bulla to be able to get the material out of the bulla without the need of a laser uh, in terms of treatment or without the need of a CT in terms of diagnostics. And that's how um, uh, this idea started to form. Which is the, the extranasal, extranasal approach to this. So tell us about how you designed the study. What, what did you do? Yeah, so uh, initially, before we got into it, we, as I said, we did some Canterbury dissections for other studies, and we saw that, that the landmarks were pretty stable. We also checked some CTs, uh, and we found uh, a similar thing. Uh, so to make sure that uh, we uh, were, were correct on what we thought, we did a pilot study in three horses, and uh, to accurately determine the best landmarks to have access to either the dorsal or the conca or the ventral conca uh, bullas without you know potentially damaging anything uh, and after uh, we were happy that that we got uh, two sun landmarks that could get, give us good results uh, we went ahead and we used six cadaveric heads uh, we performed the procedures bilaterally. So we basically performed three procedures. So uh, we did uh, what we call rhinotomies. Uh, this, to, to explain it a little bit more simply, basically we grab a 14-gauge needle, uh, which uh, usually they are 2.1 millimeters. Well, they are not usually. They are 2.1 millimeters in diameter. And actually, when, when you grab a 14-gauge needle and a hammer, uh, you can uh, drive that needle through pretty much any bones in the face uh, pretty easily because those bones, the frontal, maxillary, nasal bones, they are not very thick. So just with two, three taps of the hammer, you can usually drive the, a needle through the maxillary bone. And that way we, will, we were able to get into those bullets. So we uh, made the landmarks uh, to go to the dorsal concavula with a needle, uh, and then the landmarks to make uh, to the ventral concavula with another needle, and those uh, are what we call rhinotomies. And the rhinotomies, once you get into the needle, you you uh, into the bullas, you cannot uh, forget that there will be a bone plug uh, inside the needle. So you have to remove that 14 gauge needle and replace it by another 14 gauge needle, and then at that point you will be inside the bulla and then you can uh, either aspirate material or you can infuse fluid already if there is, for example, already a fistulation that you diagnose with your scope. So you could do uh, different things. You can use it for either um, diagnosis or diagnosis and treatment. 
And we did a third thing, which uh, it was a trephination. So when we, we thought that the rhinotomies were probably best for diagnostics and a little bit more limited for treatment. So everyone likes to treat. So uh, what we did is we performed a trephination in between them, which uh, you could make it between 10 and 15 millimeters. It, it could be a little variable in terms of size. Uh, and uh, that, if you make it between the, the landmarks for both rhinotomy, it will give you access to both bulla. In that way, you will be able to do this uh, fenestration that traditionally you were doing it before with a laser. You could do it directly with an instrument and make sure that you could put, rather than needing a scope to lavage the area, you could put you know, fluid directly in the area and do uh, lavage that way. I hope it, it was easy to understand. Well, I'm just going to repeat it to make sure it's, it's clear to me. And if it's clear to me, hopefully it, I'm simpler than the whole audience, that it would be clear to them. Um, basically, you, with cadaver, cadaver studies, a few heads, you identified how you could access those two bullets from an extra nasal position using a needle. Uh, once you felt comfortable with the landmarks, you knew that if I made an approach here, I would get directly into the ventral or dorsal concobola. But then you said, it sure would be nice if I could access both of them through one hole instead of two holes, which is why you then came back and uh, found a third place in which by making a, uh, a decent-sized tree-fined hole, you could access those two bulla, which in theory still had the needles in them, so you knew that you could reach them through the tree find site. Is that a fair summary of, of what you did? Yeah, yeah. The only thing I, I will say is that uh, we did it, the, the third part, it was the trephination, uh, which it was 13 millimeters, so it's not that big. Uh, traditional trephinations are sometimes bigger than that, 15 millimeters. So the, the beauty of this last one, as you said, was to access both, but also the potential that this one could be for diagnostic, but will have way more potential for uh, therapeutics. For treatment, yeah. So ideally, the other two sites, if you're putting the needle in, you were thinking, okay, I could put my needle scope in here and see that they're infected, versus the third site, if it was big enough, uh, you could treat it. Or you're saying you, you would... For diagnostic purposes, you wouldn't put the needle scope in that. No, no, no. With this technique, we don't use the needle scope at all. Uh, uh, with this technique, we'll put just a needle because um, I, I just want to clarify the situation. These bullets are very small, and usually when there is pathology, they are completely filled with pus, so you wouldn't be able to see anything. So the goal was to, one, if, if, there is, if there is pus, you know, you could uh, uh, you could take a sample, send it for culture, and that way have a definitive diagnosis. And at the same time, once the needle is in there, you could use your needle to put some fluids through it and lavage and dislodge the pass from the area. Of course, that's always assuming that there was a rupture uh, uh, because we are accessing this from, let's say, the lateral aspect. So most of these cases when they are chronic they also have a hole medially but not all the time so to be able to have a hole medially so 
you are flashing through, you will have to either do your trephination to perforate that a little better or just simply advance the needle a little farther so you not only perforate the lateral wall of the bulla but also the medial wall of the bulla so when you are uh, uh, delivering some fluid, it has an entry point and an exit point. For those that are listening that are thinking, wow, this is something I want to do and I want to use these approaches and landmarks that you talk about in your paper, when they stick the needle in for diagnostic purposes to get the sample and then they pull back and they don't get a sample, how will they know, how can they confirm they're in the right place and there is in fact no infection versus they're in the wrong place and the lack of a sample couldn't be misinterpreted as, as, as just being in the wrong spot? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, uh, and that's why we performed the study. And usually, I would say most people will do a CT, and based on the CT, will establish some external, external landmarks, and that's how you will access the area. But you already know if there is pathology or not. Our approach was a blind approach. And what we try uh, to see is, do we have a margin of error or not? So what we realize is that doing our rhinotomies, we were in the exact location in 12 out of 12 for both the dorsal and the ventricle cumbula. So if you don't get anything, there could be two scenarios, that there is nothing or that there is pass that is really hard in there. So my recommendation is, when you put the needle and you obtain nothing, put three, four, five mLs inside of warm saline and then try to get it back to see if that way you can uh, dilute or, or break down a little bit of the inspissated pass uh, and get something back. All, all, also, you know, once you get the needle in there, if there is inspissated pus, probably you're going to have a smell that is going to come, but um, that's probably not very accurate anyway. Perfect. Super helpful. And I think that gives folks um, that haven't had a chance to read the paper, but they're listening to this, the confidence uh, that there's a pretty good chance that once you follow the guidelines and the landmarks, there's a pretty good chance you're going to be in it. You're saying it's not the most difficult thing to hit once you know how to hit it or enter. It's probably a better way to phrase it. Yeah, no, that's that's uh, fairly accurate. Uh, the only thing I will reiterate, uh, and and for that, you know, I think it's better to read the paper so you see the landmarks. I, I think we have uh, nice figures, uh, but uh, yes, you have to stick to the percentages and the distances to make sure that. Uh, you are really in a good place. But I don't think that's uh, very very difficult to obtain. And that's a good follow into this next question in that, you know, as you said, you're able to identify uh, both bulla in every course or you're able to get to it. However, the nasolacrimal duct was disrupted uh, when you entered the ventral bulla in about 25% of the horses. What advice do you have uh, for the practitioner, for the veterinarian, for anybody trying this to avoid that happening, um, particularly in those that are doing this for the first or second time. Yeah, that's correct. Although I'll just uh, throw a clarification there. Uh, for the dorsal concobula, uh, the approach was safe in 12 out of 12 approaches. 
it was for the ventral concha bulla where you you uh, could damage the nasolacrimal duct and in 3 out of 12 so 25% of the cases we did damage it so we saw that the nasolacrimal duct actually has a, a variable position so it's a little bit difficult to anticipate where it is but it's usually a little ventral to uh, where you have you to do your approach to the ventral concave bulla. However, it's not too far from it. So if you displace a little bit more ventral than you should, uh, you could damage it. But here is the question, how relevant it is if we damage the nasal acrimal duct? I think there are two, and uh, we discussed that in the paper, there are two answers to that question. Um, depending how much you damage the nasolacrimal duct, the, lasolac the nasolacrimal duct could form a lot of fibrous tissue and get clogged. In that case, the horse is going to start tearing through the eye, and uh, to resolve that, you may need to do another surgical procedure. In contrast, what I think that it will be the most likely scenario is that if you damage the nasolacrimal duct, how is an acute damage, and it's not uh, 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 it's not a compression damage. It's basically a laceration, and there is tear fluid continuously going through. Probably, what it will happen in most cases is that uh, the tear is instead of draining at the end of the nose, it would drain in the middle of the nose, which it will have no clinical uh, repercussions in theory. Great. Um, moving on to the, the, the trephination part. Okay, the, uh, it looks like uh, your trephination procedure of the maxillary bone uh, at that very specific location that you guys described to access both bulla uh, through a relatively small keyhole was successful in 11 out of 12 horses, which is really good, especially for your first time kind of developing where you want that site. What tips and tricks do you have for the listener so that they could be equally as successful with their accuracy on being able to, to, to get to both bullet through their, their maxillary trepanation? Yeah, so I, I think uh, sticking to the landmarks. Uh, the only horse that uh, we didn't, we weren't able to access both bullets, we realized that while performing it with the drill, we slipped a little bit too dorsally, and that's why we didn't have access to the ventral uh, to the ventral concobula. Uh, another another important thing is that we try to minimize the size of our trephination, so we didn't have a big hole in on the size of the face. As I said, uh, it was thirteen millimeters, so it's not that big. But if you are a, li a little off, I don't think there will be any uh, major problem if you enlarge your trephination with a bone ronger to make it a little bigger so to make sure that you have access to both bullets. And remember, uh, in the literature, because there is not much information, and I, know I can also talk about uh, personal experience, not, uh, usually only one of the bullets are affected. So not, ne not necessarily both bullets will be affected. So potentially you will need to access only one of them. The good thing about the landmarks that we use is that 
you could access both if you had doubts. And also it was a little higher than the, uh, than the entry point for the uh, rhinocentesis for the ventral So that way there was no risk of damaging the nasolacrimal duct. Which is great. And, and with one bullet seemingly more effective than the other one, would you like to express which one that you would err on the side of, of going after if you had a 50-50 shot? Uh, I, I don't remember on the top of my head all the cases that were reported, but uh, so just to describe a little bit more the anatomy, the dorsal concavula usually have the drainage points distally, and the ventral concavula has the drainage points dorsally, which it means that if there is fluid accumulation in the ventral one, how the holes for drainage are dorsally, it's a little bit harder for that bulla to drain. So most of the cases I've seen, and I think most of the cases in the literature, were related to uh, uh, inspissated in pass in the ventral concavula. So the ventral concavula will be, if I have to bet, the one that I will want to um, treat yeah. or the one that's, that I will access. That's my experience, too, because it seems like those are the ones where the, the thickest, nastiest stuff is sitting uh, in the conclusion part of this paper, you discuss that the the, uh, tre- the tree find hole is large enough to get an instrument through, which is great because the whole point of doing it is so you can treat these bullets and open them up to get the inspissated pus out. But I was curious um, what the visualization for what you were doing is like when you have an instrument in that hole and that hole is pretty small. How do you see what you're doing? How would our listeners um, know what they're pulling out do you have another hole for a camera or what's your advice on that? Yeah, so our idea was to be minimally invasive. So that's why we use a hole that was small but big enough to access both bullets if necessary and to enter an instrument. Why to enter an instrument? Because you will need to break the lateral wall of the bulla so that way you can get into it. And potentially even more. Potentially you could make, break the lateral and even the medial wall. So basically the instrument in there is for destruction of the walls of the bulla so the pass in there can drain more easily. And the advantage of it is that, yes, it's a nose. It's going to drain a lot. It's going to bleed. But the bleeding is going to go ventrally and through the nose and potentially not necessarily in large amounts through your trephination. So you will be still able to see, grab inspissated pass if needed, or uh, introduce uh, introduce a flash system to lavage the area. But you're able to, you're, you're looking at this through the hole or up the nose. How do you see yourself breaking down that wall? Directly through the hole. Okay, so the hole you feel is big enough that you can see your instrument and what you're doing simultaneously. Yeah, so basically, uh, and we, I think we have a nice figure on the paper, if you do this trephination, you will see the ventral aspect of the dorsal bulla and the dorsal aspect of the uh, ventral bulla. So basically, once you see that, your instrument will go and just basically take a bite of it, and that way the bulla will be now open, so you can get material out and flush it. So it's just a little hole 
to allow you to break that bulla so you can remove and flash or lavage. I hope that is clear. Yep, and for those that are that have the paper in front of them as they're listening to this, um, Dr. Boney is uh, referencing figure three, and it, it's, it is nice and clear uh, what he's talking about if you wanted to look at it while we were talking. Um, uh, if I can interrupt, if you're sure. looking at that figure, you will see that there is a, a, a black area in between both of them, and that's just the meato. So once you open the drainage, uh, sorry, once you break the bulla, they're going to drain to that meatus and into the nose. The middle meatus. Perfect. So how has this paper changed your practice? What are you doing, what are you doing now based on uh, what you learned from this? Yeah. And actually, I would say it's not a pathology I encounter very commonly, but I do encounter it once in a while. So... And since this was published, there was another paper uh, that uh, described the uh, localization or, or the, 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 land, the, the area where you could identify these bullets radiographically. Uh, unfortunately, the accuracy to determine with radiographs if there is pathology or not, it, it, we don't know. Uh, that's, that's not clear, and, and there is no study that has looked at it. So how this paper has changed our practice is that before I needed CT to obtain a diagnosis, most likely, because endoscopy, if there was uh, a fistulation, wouldn't make it 100% sure that it was there. Uh, neither radiography, unfortunately. So, and then for treatment, usually you needed the laser to make the, 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 the fistulation a little bigger so the pus will come out. So what has changed is that right now I don't need CT for diagnosis or either, you know, once I get the diagnosis with CT to guide where I will perform this extra nasal approach if I want to do it this way rather than with the laser. So basically uh, uh, right now I don't need expensive diagnostics or material. I don't need CT or the laser with an extra nasal hole on the size of the face. I could get both diagnostics and treatment for any listener that is has they, they've tried this and they are looking for a few more tricks or they have questions about it or for those that are interested in wanting to get started but just have a few more questions that uh, I wasn't uh, good enough to come up with to ask you now directly uh, is there any way our listeners would be able to reach you to ask you any of those specific questions sure yeah yeah uh... Uh, in the paper, there is my email. I won't say it because it's fairly long, but uh, my email is on the paper, so you can you can email me at any point if you at any point if you have any questions. And and uh, just for for those out there that uh, still do CT, uh, it, it's a very valuable technique. So I'm not saying that this technique is a replacement of CT. But what many people, me included, has done and is still, well, not me, but other people I know they do it, is that they do the CT to get the landmarks where they will perform this trephination because some people feel that it's a better technique than doing the laser. 
Right now, you have the landmarks with this paper, uh, so uh, you will not need to do CT to obtain those those landmarks. Yeah, for anybody um, needing it, uh, the corresponding author email, again, that's Dr. Bonilla's email. It is uh, just below the title and the names of the paper uh, and above the abstract. Uh, it's right there, and, and as he said, he's happy to answer any questions. He's, he's a great guy. Uh, he's very insightful. We appreciate his time. Uh, thank you so much for the interview and bringing life to the paper. Uh, I found it pretty helpful and useful and hopefully everybody else did too. Thank you very much for the opportunity and uh, thank you to EVE. Thank you to you, Dr. Williams, for, for the questions, the time, and, and uh, I hope this technique is useful for many people out there. Great. Thanks so much. Tune in for the next one. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Education Podcast. More on the subjects discussed in this podcast can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash e.